are now entering the Podglomerate. With me, I have an easier time talking to like a communist or a white supremacist because I know they believe in things. And the people who just sub sublimated themselves for some for, for what they know and they told me was was wrong. That I mean, I, I there's there's a kind of tragedy that's interesting, but I I find it tougher to embed with those uh, that sort of person. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. This is a show where we interview creatives about the one story they've always well, told. Well, well, I'm Kyle. And that's Kyle. Sorry, I'm a little excited. Uh, as you can tell, pumped. That that noise that you just heard is something that I've been working on for almost a whole year, which is longer than I do almost anything else ever in my entire life. Hold on, back up. You're so excited you buried the lead. Jeff launched a new business. I did. It's a podcasting business. Tell them all about it. Uh, so Podglomerate is a hybrid podcast network and production company. All that's relevant to you guys is the podcast network. We're making really cool shit for you guys to listen to. Uh, hopefully you learned something from listening to it. We cover politics, culture, immigration, uh, relationships, love, sex, food, history, writing, creativity. Uh, it's awesome. There's plenty of stuff that you can listen to, and you can do that by going to thepodglomerate.com. We have a newsletter that you can sign up for for more frequent updates, but all I want you to do is go and listen and find something that you love. Thepoglomerate.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now I'll stop you know, doing the shameless self-promotion, and you guys can listen to this episode that we have prepared with a very special guest, Dave Weigel. Who has written a book about progressive rock, uh, also known and shortened to prog rock, which is... If you're anything like me, the music that your dad listened to while you were growing up. It's fascinating. I mean, for the longest time before I read this book, I thought prog rock was alternative rock because I'm an idiot, but it is really fascinating. And, and Dave also wait, wait, wait. Has... I feel like the important thing here is that Jeff said to me before we uh, started doing most of the research, prog rock. So that's like incubus, right? Oh, no, I said hoobastank. Even better. <laughs> Well, in any case, I, I learned a lot from reading this book. You should all pick it up. You can get it wherever books are sold. Uh, you might know Dave from Twitter. He is super popular over there and became even more popular during this election cycle uh, because he is a national correspondent for The Washington Post and uh, covers uh, many of the crazy things that are happening under the Trump administration that you have probably heard about. Uh, we talked to him a lot in this episode about bias in political writing, progressive rock, uh, his experience to get to where he is, and being a uh, journalist with opinions. So let's get right to it. So welcome to the show, Dave. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. How's everything going? I mean, I feel like you in particular, as a national correspondent covering grassroots and politics at the Washington Post, are having a hell of a year. Yeah, I'm glad it looks that way. Uh, I, I'm, I'm having a good time covering it, although it is a lot of driving. It's a lot of talking to people who don't always get to be quoted in the story. Um, I, and I always feel bad about that. I mean, I, I just today was in very rural Kansas, a town of about 250 people, uh, at a town hall meeting with 150 people showing up uh, from out of town. Uh, not far out of town, some of them some of them far, some of them not. And I talked to a bunch and looked at the article and I only quoted a few. So I've got this ongoing sort of Joe Gould's uh, secret collection of, of really interesting people. Uh, and I end up mostly quoting the politicians, who sometimes are not the most interesting. Do you store those quotes anywhere? Do you ever go back to them? Uh, you know, I, I have them, and I kind of used to grab them for pieces at the end of the week that I could just publish online. I haven't in a while. It's a good idea. But I'm, I'm a kind of a pack rat by nature anyway. I think that's, that's actually become a strength of sorts in journalism that I'm totally obsessed with uh, a lot of things. <laughs> and that's clear from my, my, my work. I've 
rarely throw books out. I, I just hang on to tons of things. And I feel the same way about sources and journalism. So do you just have like a Google Drive and spreadsheet with all of your sources and where to find that transcript and that kind of thing? No, I'm really bad at that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> and if so, what is the password? Yeah. Well, I guess it would be helpful for our listeners if you gave us, you know, the Cliff Notes version of your career trajectory that which led you to where you're at now. It's pretty pretty boring. I think about this too. And every, I mean, I think about like with a job is that I talk to people with pretty interesting middle class career trajectories, and I had a very lucky uh, middle class one where my parents could. Yeah, it was always understood that if I wasn't stupid, my folks would send me to college. So I, I in high school was pretty lazy for a while, got less lazy the last few years, and got into Northwestern. And I, I got into there specifically because I knew I could write and, to an extent, report, although I wasn't very good at it yet. Uh, and I have met people who were that age and can kill it. I could not. And, and I thought, well, this is, there's only really one one job you could you could have, one career path that lets you be obsessed with things and write about them, so let me do that. And I, I think I was much less ambitious at the time. I, I kind of wanted to write about, uh, be more of a critic. I wasn't sure how ballsy I was in terms of going out and getting people to talk to me if they didn't want to talk. I remember one of my assignments in, uh, in journalism school was this fairly complicated uh, reporting on people suffering from AIDS in Chicago and getting out of my comfort zone that time. It, it took me a couple of tries to really get... I don't want to be uh, totally to cancel my thought out and say uh, get, get, to get comfortable in, uh, out of my comfort zone, but that's what it was to just feel that uh, stories that were kind of awkward and took me out of my safe place were the ones I wanted to doing. Uh, I, I learned that at college basically, and then got to apply for a couple jobs. Got a couple jobs. The one I decided to take right after school was at USA Today, and uh, yeah, I ended up staying in DC. You know, in a way I did not originally expect. Um, what are some of those in between jobs that you took in between college and USA Today to keep the progress moving? Let's see. Well, so in, in Northwestern, a lot of people I, I know and have, have met since then went there for grad school. I went there just for undergrad, and you it is, you are encouraged to work for something on campus. I did so. I worked for, edited a weekly paper, wrote a column for a daily paper. But most of your useful work was pieces you would report for class and maybe sell for magazine. So I sold a couple pieces to, to Reason Magazine. Uh, and this libertarian outlet, I was fairly libertarian in college. I'm, I'm less so now, I'll, I'll freely admit. Uh, and we got along really well. They, as soon as they had an opening uh, in 2006, I heard about it and applied for it and got it. And that's actually... I discovered pretty early on then uh, that is how a lot of this works. You you need to be not bad at what you do, but you make connections, especially in a place like D.C. or New York, uh, th- through constantly pitching and meeting people and showing up to things and writing a story that gets noticed. Uh, and so I, I lobbied pretty hard to get into that magazine. Uh, even when I was at USA Today, I wrote a, f- a few freelance pieces for them. USA Today was a... Um, uh, editorial assist on the op-ed page. So my main job was calling people to get quotes for, well, fact-checking, one, uh, and co- the other was calling people to get quotes for Al Newhart, the founder of the paper, his his column. And so that was, that got me a little bit out of my out of my lazy place, realizing I remember, I, remember uh, I had to, for one piece, I think he wrote about Donald Trump, so I contacted Trump's office in 2004, and Trump, uh, as we all know, can't shut up about himself, so he actually gave me time and made a made a point of saying he was calling me from a phone on his plane. Uh, I don't know. I, I wasn't star dazzled by this, but I was impressed that if you use the license of journalism, people can talk. People will talk to you. Although there are different levels of this. There is the hi, I'm talking to you for something that, that you're going to like appearing in, versus hi, I'm waiting outside your house to ambush you on something that's going to be awkward, right? <laughs> and I. I got good at the first one. It took me longer to get the second. So it's kind of interesting because it sounds like 
and you said yourself that you you kind of had a trajectory to get yourself out of your comfort zone and mm-hmm. you know you have have seemingly done that your entire career you know even now covering you know the right in at the Washington Post i mean that's something that you've been doing at different outlets for the last decade um which was not the case for many people out there so was that you know intentional throughout or is that something that just kind of like happened to occur and, and by the right i mean specifically you know the tea party and the very conservative movement uh well i was interested in, uh, again i mentioned that i was more libertarian in college and that was encouraged in part and i've met the other people who did, did this there's a, a conservative journalism network called the called the collegiate network uh, part of the ISI, your Institute Studies Institute, not to get into the weeds, because this story is written every few years, how there's a network of fairly, um, not secretive, but fairly opaque organizations that help people become young conservative journalists. And I, 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 I wouldn't say I was indoctrinated, but I already kind of believed that stuff. Uh, I also, and I found this from other people I've met in D.C. who, who are not super conservative now, there is a certain thrill you get from being an outsider in, in any way. And you know, on campus, it's often conservative. So I, I was I was reading about uh, conservative thought and politics when I was 18, 19, 20. I found it interesting. I always found political history interesting, although it took me a while to get interested in the policy. And I, I'll, I'll cop. I just was kind of into it as a sport first. And it's still on election nights. I... I have my ways I analyze where votes are coming from and what, what matters, et cetera. But in terms of getting uh, interested in a in a real way in politics as a mechanism for redistributing power and wealth, uh, that was pretty slow. And that, that came through writing political articles at Reason and other places. And, uh, and, I, and I was more interested in, in the process and in strange things than in, in the ideology. This is actually a problem for me at Reason where uh, it, it is it's founded to advance a certain type of, of ideology, obviously, uh, ideology, obviously, is libertarianism. Uh, I was sympathetic to it, but that's not all I cared about. It was a hindrance there. So I felt better when I was covering uh, conservatism and the movement for uh, for other things. For, for, uh, for this startup, The Washington Independent, that was quite good. Uh, that everyone who worked there actually has gone to great things, and then everything I've worked at since. So I wanted to to bring up something that happened, if you don't mind, back in, I think it was 2010, where you uh, had resigned from the Washington Post because of some comments that you had made on uh, Journalist, which was right. um, you know an Ezra Klein uh, network back in the day. Uh, it seems like throughout your career, you have had to kind of maintain this distance from your work and not really uh, show your or include your opinions. Um, is that is that something that you would say is accurate? Mm, no, I think the opposite. I think uh, so. I, when I was laid off, uh, and it was kind of a weird thing where I offered to resign and I they accepted it and I I would have preferred they didn't immediately accept it and I figure out a way to work there. But people told me at the at the time, oh, it's going to be good for you in the long run that you're that this thing blew up at the post and you're not working there anymore. I didn't believe them. Uh, it was it was true. And one thing that was helpful immediately, well, not immediately, there were a couple of weeks where I was kind of showing up at stuff around D.C. and talking to people who had been insulted in emails I wrote to other journalists uh, mostly patched it up. That that part wasn't fun. But after that, it was very clear that people knew what my opinions were. Uh, and this was also, this is 2010, so Twitter already is big, fairly big deal. At this point, nobody seems to censor themselves on Twitter anymore. Nothing I, nothing I said on this on this private list, should I say, was you know, bantering between journalists and academics with a fair number of curse words and insults. Nothing on there is different than what people say on Twitter now. Not to say they should. It was fairly stupid. And I, just, I, shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have written it. But after that, uh, it was hard for people to say that I was concealing it, my beliefs or 
trying to hide an agenda in something. Uh, you know, they'll be pretty open. Wasn't there an instance recently where you had tweeted something, I think back in August, about um, one of the candidates that lost his election, and I am not really recalling the race, uh, and, you know, something similar happened where, you know, the, the media jumped up and said, oh, no, you shouldn't, you know, be saying something like that. Um, maybe that was just a one-off that I noticed, um, but I'm, I'm kind of curious as to, like, how often that happens nowadays that somebody calls you out for one of your personal opinions or beliefs, and also, you know, is that something that you actually worry about? Uh, I'm not quite sure what you're referring to. There was an instance where my friend Mark Caputo from Politico Now, previously the Miami Herald, had been uh, yelled at by this carpetbagger who moved to Florida, ran for Congress, and I, I called him a loser on Twitter, and people said, hey, that's that's pretty biased to call him a loser. And I said, well, yeah, good point. I, should, I got hot, hot-headed. That's still the circumstances where I tend to say more than I should, or if I feel, if I feel like somebody is being smeared for doing their job. Uh, but usually the best way to react to that is just to, to bite your tongue or say something factual, not to get in a fight. Uh, but I don't... It's really... It's more that I'm pretty clear what my opinions are. They're clear when I talk to Ted Cruz. They're clear when I talk to Bernie Sanders. Um, I And I write uh, some amount of opinion for the paper. It's usually marked as analysis because opinion is a separate section. Uh, but for fix and for power post, I write stuff where it's pretty clear what I say. And I, I think I'm very glad there are journalists who do not uh, have that approach, who do try to stay completely neutral. Uh, but I think it's good, and people seem to like it when somebody has a political, has is, is fairly open about what they think is smart political strategy or what opinions they ha- opinions they might have. I liked it when I read opinion columnists, and I kind of like it uh, being able to to write like that myself. So in this world, so th- this is an interesting thing for me. As like I to uh, when I started out at Ithaca, I was a journalism major, and like the cardinal rule was objectivity. And lately, uh, we've been talking to journalists, and one of the things that I'm hearing more often now is that. Um, it's okay to espouse an opinion. I don't know if maybe I just had some bad journalism teachers, but it seems counter to what the professors used to tell us, which is like, you need to check your bias. You need to make sure you're writing from an objective standpoint. Um, As someone who espouses uh, the sort of, you know, upfront opinion at the, or upfront, I guess, bias, um, how do you square that with the people who write purely objectively? I don't think he's saying that he he writes with bias. Well, it's uh, it's it's less bias, and I guess maybe I'm saying it wrong. Hold on, this is the first time I'm trying to form this thought. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's mostly like if you. One of the things a, a previous journalist said to us is like he doesn't believe that anybody can write with objectivity, so why even pretend? Um, and I guess it's interesting to hear your side of it where you feel like people know your opinion because you put it out there often enough where you don't really have to pretend to be objective anymore. Well, Does that make sense? These words all mean different things. I think uh, uh, when I think of bias, I think of somebody choosing not to read facts that would contradict their opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I will come to something with an opinion that's pretty pretty formulated I, uh, by stuff I've covered and experienced and interviewed. For example, I mean, when I, I kind of write about Democrats single-payer, I don't write columns saying single-payer is amazing. Uh, I do write about a lot of time I've spent with uh, left-wing activists and studying how these systems work in different countries, uh, studying the, the case against it, and I kind of explain it, but it's, it, if I get, it, you know, Twitter is a place where you can diverge from um, what you put into print and, and the way you express yourself. And the way it often comes up on Twitter is me saying is, is me uh, taking the side that, of course, single player makes sense for these Democrats. Um, but I actually, I think the, 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 if I have a bias, it's usually I just want to not be wrong. 
And that <laughs> means not just in what I write, but in a prediction or me guessing how something's going to go. And so, you know, I, like a lot of journalists, I, I would make a, not assumptions about Donald Trump losing, but write an analysis predicated on how Trump was doing what was necessary in order for somebody to lose. And when he didn't, that challenged a lot of my priors about covering politics. But I guess the, the point I'm making is that what I really never liked uh, and then was liberated from, I think, in 2010 was what Jay Rosen calls the view from nowhere, where uh, you know the, the platonic example of this is you're writing about how... Uh, uh, there's a climate change bill, uh, or cap and trade, let's say, something dealing with climate change, and you, and you say, Democrats say the bill would, would uh, ameliorate the effects of climate change, whereas Republicans, many Republicans say that the science is, is, is unproven. It's like a thorny debate, and you're actually kind of doing a disservice if you say, well, uh, if, if you say both sides are coming to this with the same facts. And it's also... A lot of what I think we have to do in political journalism is unpack what is being advanced be, because of, a, of an agenda, uh, either personal or through through donors. Like you, you have to unpack this, and I don't think readers like it if a outlet is pretending that you have to cover something without bias means to pretend that you just are woke up in the universe and don't know which which side has a better argument, mm-hmm. but has a, a point with more ballast behind it. And so that, that that's a, I guess that's an example. I mean, the, the, I mentioned climate change before, I think, because I think it's a classic one. But a, a good one's ta- tax policy. I mean, I have, I have no problem saying that uh, making fun of supply side tax cuts, especially in a system where taxes are fairly low, like ours, because we just have the data and they don't really work very well compared to uh, raising the right kind of taxes. And then there, if you if you hit the certain income level. Income tax rate, they need to be cut again. But we've experimented with this. So I, I, I like being able to differentiate between... The, the, the differentiate in the things I cover without worrying, oh man, I really kind of didn't, didn't give equal time to the uh, cutting taxes forever is going to double our revenue side. Uh, well, no, it's like <laughs> I, I've learned that it's not true, so I don't cover it that way. Yeah. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, you and the outlets that you work for are able to take a stand based on educated analysis and information on, on a given topic. Uh, and you're okay with standing by that, regardless of if it maybe alienates somebody who thinks otherwise, um, which is, you know, a great way to put it in, in something that uh, I'm not sure many people nowadays kind of understand. I think well, especially... I, I think, but I think especially we're in a moment where because there is an assumption advanced by especially the political right that the media is always going to be dishonest about them. And I would encounter, I would encounter this covering Ted Cruz, who I actually like as a person to cover quite a lot. Um, you know, media being the audience, and Trump gets more credit because Trump has these slashing attacks on media, but, but Cruz had this more coherent critique where the media that's, that is covering conservatives is biased, it's never going to give them a fair shake, it's never going to be fair. Um, there's a pretty long pedigree of that sort of thinking that goes back, God, forever. But but in, in the modern iteration, it goes back to Richard Nixon uh, framing the, the establishment and the media being elites that were going to try to slow down his agenda. And there there are just <laughs> you need to watch out for for that sort of politicking, where somebody's trying to exploit the natural tendency of the main of the modern media in not wanting to appear like they have a slant because they're going to tell the uh, not all readers but they're going to tell their political base well that the media does have a slant and i feel like that is this bind people have become have, have fallen into under trump where reporters just keep getting into these fights over stupid things that, that the president tweets the president uh sometimes says and they try to maintain this idea that he can't say those crazy things because it is the the media is an institution that must be respected and just tries to cover balls and strikes fairly. The the president's base doesn't believe that. So, like, why would you... If you're going to engage in political journalism, you have to just be honest about the biases. Uh, everyone, yourself, uh, the readers, the politicians you cover, and go from there. And the way that I found to deal with it is to 
I'd, I would say be pretty honest with everyone what I think, but then in the story uh, convey all the information fairly. And sometimes conveying it fairly is like not going to go as good for one side as the other. Do you think uh, the social media landscape of today with things like Twitter makes that easier or harder to achieve? Let's see. That's a good question. I actually think it's been very liberating. Uh, I think that, I mean, people are correct that those who cover politics have opinions about what they cover. And sometimes just, you know, who's, who is a, who's a hard ass on their beat and who isn't. Uh, who's corrupt and who isn't. It can be things like that. Um, but it's. I think Twitter has allowed a lot of journalists to reveal a bit more about who they are, and it's it's mostly good. I mean, I just don't... I, don't, I as a consumer of news, g- get really skeptical if I see people, especially on TV, I really don't like political TV, um, pretending to be floating above everything. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I it just, it just rings as false to me, and uh, so that that's something I've tried to avoid doing. I, and again, I really like it. I mean, I, I work especially at the Washington Post. I work with um, people who are just all they care about is getting the information, getting the story, conveying, conveying facts. Especially for the White House team, who the president. Uh, has kind of attacked sometimes, are just really good at their jobs and at, at working sources. Uh, I think because of the beats I cover, I am I end up being in places where I'm explaining what the sources think. Uh, and, I'm you know, it's in, in doing so, not worrying if, if I sound like I'm taking, not taking a side. We're not worrying if I, if I sound as, the, if, as if, this position's right or that position's right as I describe them. I just, I just, I, th- I think I just try to absorb as much information as possible, and then print what a, print what seems seems important. And I don't sweat it when people are like, "Oh, you forgot to mention," or you, you, you were too credulous about the way Bernie Sanders expressed this thing, or you were too credulous about the way Ted Cruz expressed this thing. I mean, I, and I think overlaying all this is I just. I really just find ideology interesting. And so I found that people of people with a and this can be extreme I think basically socially unaccepted ideologies uh, and it can be pretty mainstream left-wing politics. I've been accused of writing articles about fair, you know fairly white supremacist figures that were too sympathetic to them. Lots of people have actually. I mean, I think they were, during this period when everyone was profiling Richard Spencer a lot of people were, were accused of just not, uh, not of giving him so many passes because they wanted him to be an interesting character. Uh, but the, I just find it's it, it's better to come at a source explaining what you what you personally believe, and then explaining for the for the reader confidently and thoroughly what that what the these people are doing. Yeah. So it seems a lot like you know, you may get a dozen sources or people saying, you know, 10 things that might be true, but, you know, within an article, something might be more relevant than than the next piece. And I'm kind of curious about how you deal with, uh, you know, the pace of somebody in your position and what you're expected to write, because you write, you know, quite a few articles each week. Is it ever, you know, really tough to keep up with? Because uh, you're not working, you know, a nine to five you know, and for our for our listeners right now, it's you know almost eleven o'clock at night because Dave right. is chasing an interview. <laughs> well, I was catching up with a candidate who I'd been covering, and we had a we we both realized we were in the same place, so we had forty five minutes to catch up for another story. Uh, I don't find that tiring at all. It's actually being on the road. I find um, almost almost liberating, definitely energizing. Um, I. I take lots of flights, but I'm, I, I usually go for the early morning flight because I want to spend as much time in the next city as possible. Um, the thing I worry about is that if you're jet-setting and spending time in hotels, you're not talking to actual people who vote and matter, but so I, I bake that a lot of that in during the day, too. Uh, and that's, I think, what I've... Maybe we're describing this before it started, I forget, but I... Uh, my style of reporting is is fairly 
very vacuum-like, and I just collect a lot of information, a lot of quotes, and some proportion of it ends up in the article, a lot of it doesn't, but I, I come away convinced that I've got a good picture of what was happening and conveyed the right stuff for the reader. Now, I'm describing like what is basically all reporting, but, <laughs> but the way I do it with politics is I, I try to be that comprehensive. What happens if somebody comes to you with, you know, a statement or a life experience that you just cannot relate to? Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if that's, if that's happened. Uh, I think that the, the challenge recently has been, I mean, if people believe in things, I tend to say, well, why do they believe in them? That's interesting. Uh, and... I, I'm, I think I have a bigger problem uh, interviewing people who I can tell don't really believe in what they're saying. Uh, an example here would be people who made very eloquent cases for why they could not vote for Donald Trump and then, you know, went to work for his presidency. Like those people, I... And that's see, that's what I was describing. I have colleagues who I think are absolutely the best people in the, in the world at covering this president, getting information, getting these sources... With me, I have an easier time talking to like a communist or a white supremacist because I know they believe in things, and the people who just sub sublimated themselves <laughs> for some for, for what they know and they told me was was wrong. That I mean, I, I there's there's a kind of tragedy that's interesting, but I I find it tougher to embed with those uh, that sort of person. That's some next level uh, shade. Oh. Right there. Oh no, no one specific. <laughs> but it's pretty obvious. And there's guys who like ran for president, attack, yeah. attacking this guy, and then worked for him. So it's like I understand. I feel like I mean I've known Steve Bannon for years. Like I, when I I understand Steve Bannon, I I kind of in in covering him, I'll try to take pains to describe what he thinks and where what it, where it comes from. But then like a Rick Perry who said the guy was a cancer conservatism and is now kind of bumbling along in the administration that I just th that's tougher for me to not to comprehend because we can all comprehend you know supplication and the lust for power but it's just less <laughs> I guess it's less interesting for me to understand those people um, so when you approach a story or dealing with aspects of a story about these people how do you check that natural inclination you might have to disengage to disengage uh, yeah with, because you find them less interesting I mean, I just, it's, it's the nice thing about working at a giant paper where I, I write about uh, ideology and activism and other people write about other stuff. And I find it's just, I never get tired of writing about what I write about. Uh, it's on the right or left. I mean, I really like talking to people who deeply believe in things and try to make them happen through politics. So I really, it just sounds like Pollyannish. It's, it's not. I mean, I, I, I work through lots of weekends and I take lots of long assignments and and the trip I took this week involved seven hours driving through Kansas and I had a great time doing it. What's Kansas like nowadays? Uh, well, it looks less boring than advertised, but everything looks less boring in the summer. I think it's the winter when the plants are are not green uh, that the, the Kansas cliche comes in play. Although I, I, I think I'm going to evade tornado season by leaving tomorrow. Uh, but what I, when it came down to like uh, the rank and file activists showing up at stuff, just hearing their personal experiences with healthcare was interesting. And, I'll, and sometimes this didn't have it today. What happens sometimes is I will ask about something happening in the world, and the voter I talk to, or activist I talk to, or sometimes members of Congress I talk to, will explain something that is false. And it's interesting to, for me, one to. Uh, intuit where they got the false impression from and and two to interview them to tease out why they believe it so you've you've said that you know it's not necessarily uh, it, it's more boring than anything to talk about talk to someone who uh you know doesn't necessarily believe in what they're saying if it's obvious yeah. but but do you ever get frustrated 
having to listen to that and you know just knowing that they're saying it just because they think it will advance their careers in one one way or another uh well yeah yeah i I just i try not to do much of it i try i try to cover stuff that's not that because i feel like i can i i can hear that and identify it a mile away and it's just not not interesting uh the like spin campaign spin i think is kind of it's fun like any rhetorical exercise is fun because you can try to pull apart why something was said, why they choose to dodge a question. I mean, I've noticed with every Democratic candidate for Congress I talk to, it it like finds a way not to say whether they'd vote for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker, for example. And I, I find that kind of slipperiness interesting. But in terms of the people I like to spend the most time with as sources, I I have more fun with the uh, with people who deeply believe in stuff. What's the what would you say is the most interesting or the most fun story you've gotten to do uh with the the believers that you're talking about? Like where what's the craziest thing it's ever taken you? Hmm, let's see. Uh I've had f- weirdly fun times covering conspiracy theories. Uh I wouldn't say it was fun, it was a little bit bracing, but the li- the, the most recent was covering the Seth Rich uh conspiracy theory. I was for the people who believe that uh because this is the kind of heat you want. Sorry, because uh, pe- people, th- I'm kind of joking, because this is the heat you want to campaign. The theory that uh, Democrats murdered a DNC staffer to cover up some uh, that he leaked emails to Gu- Gucci for WikiLeaks, that, that whole thing. I, never, I, I was very energized writing that. Saying I had fun doing it is probably the wrong way to put it. But I just really remember fo- obsessing over that and calling people and having you know one a.m. one a.m. conversations to get stuff right and go over uh, go over a fact with a lawyer, etc. Uh, I had fun with that, uh, and I had a lot of fun covering uh, the Bernie Sanders president- presidential campaign because I was surprised at how much openness there was to what was an ideological uh, ideological set of beliefs that have been basically written out of politics in America, right? Like seeing people just gravitate towards super left-wing tax increasing welfare state politics, knowing that they were not a majority, but seeing them happily glom onto that was, was I, I thought really fascinating. So I have to ask you this only because I'll be upset if I don't, but what is it like, you know, working as a a national correspondent on the politics beat for the Washington Post, knowing that at any moment somebody could hand you something that, you know, you have to decide whether or not to publish? Uh, It's a good question. It happens (laughs) at a low level. It happens a lot. I mean, one thing I've worked at, like I said, at small magazines and startups, and then I've worked at uh, Bloomberg and the Washington Post and the post of all these places uh, you find the most people just coming to you because they want your paper to ru- to run something, and I have uh, I you get crazy stuff. I mean, there was a series of emails and calls to me and a colleague about something that was obviously never going to pan out, but this person ob- obsessed with his own detective work, uh, trying to convince us that he uncovered something and spending hours to to to, to tell us. Then, then there's stuff you get. Uh, tips you get uh, that you have to chase legally. Uh, It's fun. I mean, I don't get as much of that stuff as a David Farenthold, for example, who I work uh, next Mm -hmm. to. I don't say that to name drop. I'm just saying factually, David Farenthold, Matea Gold, Tom Hamburger, there are people at the Post who sources have known them for years and years and say, this is the person I'm going to make sure gets this file. And that happens to me a little bit less. But it's, it's fun when it does happen. Yeah, I mean, I I have a, a friend who whose name I will not mention, uh, who you know is is a big time writer, and he'll constantly be getting like you know messages from congressmen or something, and you know we'll be out at the bar, and he'll just put his phone in his pocket and ignore it. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, so. that happens. I mean, and it's uh, you know it's a little bit of buzz. I uh, having covered both music and politics, when somebody who you know is doing interesting stuff. Uh, or whose work you respect when they call, you know, getting yourself in the right frame of mind to talk to them and uh, pull information they don't like <laughs> getting pulled out. 
I find that more fun than the drops you get. I mean, often often somebody wants you to write about something, and you realize it's it's lame. But there's going to be a, t- a give and take where you, maybe you run the lame story, and then a month later, two months later, uh, you get the first crack at the good one. Uh, you do see that that happening. But it's, there, a lot of these scoops are commodities uh, between the largest newspapers. It's it's actually it, it, it's it's impressive when a smaller magazine. Uh, or a smaller outlet breaks news like that uh, because you know they they usually well again with caveat usually they had to work harder to get it sometimes it was just opposition research or something the campaigns or the researchers will go to the times the post first and then it goes down the food chain and uh, i was pretty aware of that when i was at smaller magazines that i would be the maybe the 10th or 11th person that thinks to give something so you mentioned earlier that one of the things that you were slower to was the sort of like ambushing and pulling out information that people didn't necessarily right. want to give you. When did you feel that skill start to develop in your career? Was there a point where you were like, I can actually do this now? Yeah, I'd say after a little bit of that when I was at USA Today, after six, seven months there when I'm aware I can call almost anybody and at least have a chance of talking to them uh, where so the, the once the mystery faded from how how do you how do you do that how do you even somebody to, to talk to you that made things easier uh, and when it came to being a jerk to them i think it was covering congress and being in situations where you kind of had to yell over people to ask a question they uh were not going to enjoy just I, I I had to learn a bit from the pack, I would say. And mm-hmm. if you're surrounded by people who are asking those sorts of... Hostile's the wrong word, but asking those sorts of uh, tough questions that people don't want to hear, then you, if you are normal, <laughs> look back at yourself and say, am I going too easy? Uh, what, what should I be doing to to get better stuff out of these people? You know, what's a question that really will know them, knock them back? Or what is information that really would embarrass them? Is there a distinct moment that stands out for you when you were maybe like in over your head and you just powered through it? In over my head? Yeah. Well, yeah. When you're a young reporter trying to learn from the pack. Uh, I just remember there was something I was trying to write at a college paper and I was 19. And again, I was sort of part of this conservative, uh, the, this conser- this conservative uh, concern in college, you know, incur- uh, urged along by various well-funded groups to make sure there were there was a supply of young conservative journalists coming out. And I remember just kind of some story that was not a ta- actually reminds me a bit of what you now see on Fox News, where a professor said something stupid, so they'll do a whole three segments on what he did that was stupid. I remember calling this one uh, student activist and just, you know, him dunking on me again and again because he, he knew what he was talking about and, I, and all I knew was wouldn't it be, you know, wouldn't it be cool to write a, t- a takedown? Like, I thought of the takedown before I thought of the logic of what was wrong <laughs> and I, I, and I, I, I've, I have flashbacks to that sometimes realizing just there's a lot of that where people in a greater position, let's say if they have a TV studio and they can put them in front of a camera and make them answer a question, look stupid if they leave, there's like a power you can exert to ambush somebody, but otherwise you better know what the hell you're talking about. So that's why when I do it now, it's going to be about a policy that I feel like I understand really well. I was looking for a better segue to start talking about the book that you had written, um, which is the ostensible reason you've come on the show. It's called The Show That Never Ends. Um, I was hoping for like a moment where you were talking to some of these crazy music personalities, um, but we didn't get there. <laughs> um, can we talk about interviewing for this book? Because I know yeah. that this book is crazy uh, with footnotes and sources, um, and at one, at some point, about halfway through, I stopped trying to guess which one, which ones were interviews you had conducted yourself, and which ones were interviews you were pulling from. Um, what was it like to have to do the sort of re- the extensive research that you must have done to get through uh, the show that never ends? 
Uh, it's a good question. I mentioned before that I am kind of vacuum up information and then find a way to use it. And I definitely wasted a few months researching this book of collecting everything about uh, the subject. I mean, I, every every book that had been published, uh, every magazine that had been published about it, looking for oral interviews that had been done by other people, radio interviews, TV appearances, and kind of, and organizing them, but not organizing them. Uh, you know, having having read other history books, eventually I kind of went back and reverse engineered and looked at their footnotes and also, you know, talked to some people about how they wrote and had to kind of develop the actual method of piecing together a long narrative. Because I've done it before this, the longest article I'd ever written was probably 3,000 words or 4,000. The book is about 100,000. And just keeping all that in your head, I'm pretty good at keeping the information that will become a 4,000-word article in my head. Uh, but if you multiply that by by 20 or by 25 that it's just it's just such a harder task so i had you know gigs of information and uh notes and interviews and tapes and, and stuff and they spent a long time not being well organized uh and i remember one break i took where all i did for i don't know two weeks was organize that information in a way where i could quickly access it and say okay i need the interview with Rick Wakeman from 1973 with sounds where he said, and I, I and once I built that I but like most people and I, I have friends who've written books in a very short amount of time most people most people develop that faster but the, this the way I write generally uh, for my day job I, I, I write often if you've seen Sil Silicon Valley <laughs> I kind of write uh, middle out where I will know exactly what <laughs> the point that should be the, article, yeah. the point of the article, but then I write the lead and the kicker later, and I don't go in. I know there's there's there are circumstances where people kind of there's the, the phrase is dial a quote, uh, where you know that you need a Larry Sabatier or somebody to fill in a point. I don't like doing that, uh, but then I'll talk to people and they'll change the direction of the story, uh, and so with the book that the narrative stayed pretty much the same. It's just a matter of organizing everything in a way that could be turned into a book that took longer than it, it, most people take on those things how long did it take you to write it oh, oh just the, the act of writing it was probably three years uh but of, of which i'd say a year was research and had i had i just taken off and not worked and plowed through it it might have been uh closer to nine months to put it all together, but I took that in chunks of, you know, three-week vacation and two-week vacation and five days off, things like that, uh, in, order, in, order to, in order to do it. Well, so that was the very next question, is how on earth, with your productivity as a reporter, did you manage to turn out something at all? Yeah. Uh, was well, it mostly vacations? Yeah, basically. I think all my, from, uh, I went to China in 2013 and after that, had no vacation that wasn't basically uh, me working on the book somehow until November, December 2016. So, you know, good, a uh, good three and a half years of pouring all the, the spare time I had into this. Um, and the, so one of my favorite parts about this book isn't in fact the interviews you do with the, the sort of uh, I think you describe them as demigods of the scene but it's how you describe the music itself um, and it's particularly evident in the descriptions of Yes which I listened to uh, with my dad growing up and never fully appreciated I guess mm -hmm. uh, in the way that it seems that you do so you you must be a pretty big fan of progressive rock right? Oh yeah, totally. I I got into it when I was thirteen, fourteen. I, I or maybe a little bit older, but I remember I was really into heavy metal and read reviews online by critics who liked metal and liked prog too. And the, the main one of these guys being Mark, this guy Mark Prindle, who I then became friends with. Uh, and I discovered from that and just never gave up. And there was stuff I didn't like at first that I had that I came around to. I mean, I remember. It's hard for me to imagine this now because King Crimson's my my favorite band, but I remember trying to listen to Core of the Crimson King 
the first time and just not 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 getting it, not figuring out why people, this was so popular. So my tastes changed over time. I think for the better. <laughs> I mean, there's like I I can't listen to Pearl Jam anymore. I just don't get the the point of their music. Uh, <laughs> I don't even like the Grateful Dead that much, but then I will listen for every note of a, of a King Crimson live album. Um, who was the? What was the band that broke in for you in terms of listening to Prague? Uh, well, yes, was the first one I bought the albums of. Uh, in terms of, so a key in getting really the real fandom going is discovering stuff that was either unknown or fairly critically unknown or was maligned that I decided was actually great. And so I think with that, it was. Uh, I had, you know, Gentle Giant, I had to kind of jump around a few different rabbit holes to get into them. I thought they were awesome. I remember, I think, In a Glass House was the one I bought. Basically, sight unseen, knowing that they were in the genre and I should like them. And then, um, even though I think Genesis is Trespass, just, I, I, once I was finding stuff that was produced by super young artists who everyone made fun of as being pretentious and really l- liking the, the songwriting style, that's when I said, oh, there's mm. a lot of stuff here that I want to, one, dig deeper into, and two, if I do write a book about this someday, uh, make the case for. Um, are you counting the rock cruise you took as part of this non-vacation period well yeah that was but that actually that cruise was i'd say a third downtime and then two thirds work uh and i have uh two notebooks of stuff from the cruise uh, tapes of interviews things like that probably i think they're still on the computer in front of me about seven hours of audio uh some of that's quoted in the book but uh yeah in, in between i mean there's a the crew, the the concerts on the on the on the boat didn't start until the afternoon usually, so there were a couple mm-hmm. mornings where I actually took off and then came back. Uh, my only regret of the cruise was there were people who I agreed, you know, talked to them briefly, agreed not to bother them too much um, on the cruise because we would <laughs> talk a little bit later, and everyone just got too into the fun of it for us. To, uh, so I had yeah. to, I had to like chase them down again when we were back on land instead of just bumping, uh, pinning them down in a. In a in a lounge on this Norwegian ship, was it tough to interview uh, people that you were people that you had been listening to for years, or did it make it easier mm. knowing their work? Uh, well, it made it easier once I if I did the research going in. That's always true. It's it's truer if it's somebody who does stuff you care about. I mean, I no offense to politicians. I I don't think there's any politician I've talked to where I was as nervous uh as when i talked to steve howe from from yes and partly because he because he has really nothing to prove <laughs> doesn't suffer fools and would cut you off if you were asking a dumb question so so it, it took the, getting ready for these sorts of interviews uh and then you know moments like there are always moments in interviews where things don't go not hopefully not always but most of many most interviews a moment where you you think you're heading in the right direction and it kind of peters out you need to redirect and god that's scary it's people whose music you listen to forever so i'm curious actually uh did i read that that this book was initially based off of a series of blog posts about progressive rock well not blog posts Uh, it's late magazine where i worked for four years uh there was a project that uh, still exists called called Fresca, where every year uh, reporters or editors had to take a month to write about something they never normally write about. Uh, the, the idea being everyone had their obsessions. Um, really, the theory at Slate was that if you if you were obsess- if you were passionate about something or angry about something, that that was an article. You should go instead of brooding about it. You should write it. And so I made mine about the stuff I really loved, and it went from there. But it was, I don't know, that series probably eleven thousand words. It was mm-hmm. blog posts can be long, but it was not just like they were. That was deeply, re- that was not deeply reported because it was only done in a month. But it was reported in terms of me contacting, you know, dozens of musicians and trying to get them to talk mm-hmm. to me for the story. And a lot of them that I didn't talk to, I then went back once I was writing the book. That's that's so interesting. It's like Google's twenty percent time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Project Fresca. 
but uh that's that's what, what was it like trying to you know not only write this thing but promote this thing amidst the yeah. kind of circus that we're in right now you know you never know if you're gonna have to cancel an interview to cover like some kind of breaking news uh i generally never had to do that i if i set up an interview i, I knew what days generally would be good and with the occasional random event thrown your way where you have to fly out you know within six hours of hearing something uh, most times i was able to to balance them both you had a line in the book i think it was right in the beginning in the intro that was uh you know progressive is a word invented by journalists um and i thought that that was super timely because you know it was referring to music but i also couldn't help but you know get the idea out of my head that there are uh, you know instances where um journalists are inventing terms or phrases in order to fit the need or or some kind of trend that's happening during the day uh is that something that you have ever noticed or that you actually kind of uh explore or something maybe that you've done yourself uh, well i'm not sure if i f- understand the question what was it do you think that you uh as a journalist have ever kind of like you know, invented a term in order to fit something that's happening um, that has kind of stuck and become part of the zeitgeist. Oh, I fucking, I wish I did. Um, <laughs> I, I, I kind of, I, I've definitely done, I try that in articles sometimes. I'll, uh, I, I think I'll do is sort of create a, uh, a, an adjective or a verb out of a few different words. Um, a portmanteau, I guess, is, is what generally you call it. But, um, and uh, I'll refer to kind of moments. I mean, I, I definitely think I tried to coin in the early part of the year uh, the uh, idea of of the new the, the new rudeness in democratic politics, where people were much more confident to just be jerks because they would never again make the mistake of Hillary Clinton being saying, "Let's take the high road." They just became convinced that you need to be as brutal as possible. And so, yeah, the, 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 uh, those are the two things. I'll try to come up with a, a catch-all term, and nothing has become as popular as progressive rock, obviously. Um, but, but most of my portmanteaus, just in the, in the heat of a moment, I'll say, I kind of like combining these words better than I, going with some cliche word that I've used twice in this article already. Yeah, and then you become, you know, kind of like a meme or a viral sensation if and when it takes off. So Well, hopefully. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's the dream nowadays. Um so I guess now is the time, as good as any, to uh, you know transition to the story that you have always struggled to tell, uh, and I know we've gone over you know a little bit about what this means over email and earlier on uh, in the interview, but I'm curious, kind of like what that story would be for you. The most recent one, which I'll probably go back and revisit and reframe, was just I was trying to profile the Democratic Socials of America and decided it would be fun to profile them through the development of their groups in Iowa because Iowa has kind of a interesting left-wing history. Uh, Democrats got wiped out in 2016, so left-wingers can say, if you listen to us, we would have won, you, you idiots. And uh, I did the work, and I just couldn't cohere it into something I liked, and then everyone else wrote a DSA profile, so I... Thought I need to try again later. So it's not super interesting. I've never had something that... I mean, even if I've had... Um, I remember I've, I've woken up for cross-country flights where the story fell apart. Because the person I was covering didn't show up and kind of walked that off. I mean, if uh, I've I, the, the book was very hard to write, and there were moments when I thought I couldn't finish it. But in mm. general, I, I try to plow through stuff because I've, I've just realized the worst that can usually happen is... Oh, I'm uninspired, and these sentences aren't interesting, but let me just put them down on paper, and something will get published, and that's uh, you can't be inspired all the time. So I, 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 try, I, I don't abandon projects uh, very often at all. Is there anyone that you have abandoned? Well, that's the, the DSA thing, which I think I'll try to revisit. And uh, But there's nothing that's, like, gone, gone, that, you'll never, that you, ha- you haven't thought about touching in years. Uh, not really. I mean, I've, I've done stuff. There was stuff I tried to do at Slate about 
um, like about ju judicial appointments where I had this lovely poor intern help me assemble like a database we were going to use and just like we couldn't figure out what to do with it but <laughs> nothing I mean I try to re be so uh, write either stories that d deal with something that just happened in a reactive way or to pitch something uh, entrepreneurial and if I do that I something tends to come out of it dang man You'd be a, a fantastic basketball player. Really? Is that one of the skills that they need? Yeah, it's like the, the short memory so that when you miss a shot, you just keep shooting. You can't <laughs> stop shooting. Hey, okay, um, I'll think of it that way now. That was Dave Weigel. You can follow him on Twitter, at Dave Weigel. He even has his Gmail account right there in his profile. So email him your favorite progressive rock song. It's probably by yes. Uh, you can find us online at www podcast. We're also at www.podcast.com or at the Podglomerate's website, which I highly recommend checking out. Uh, just thepodglomerate.com. We are all over social media. Uh, the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library. And the music that you heard right there in the middle is from bensound.com it's a creative common track uh, we really appreciate uh, you all listening and also go pick up Dave's new book The Show That Never Ends available wherever books are sold we will see you in two weeks Pod Glomer, a sonic universe.